Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'd like to uh, read through just a few verses this time. And I will, uh, I'll pray first and then I'll read those verses. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity in your word. I pray that we would come away more clearly understanding it, that I have not and will not confuse it with my preparation, but that it will come out and into the hearers in a way that it is true and you are given the glory. Amen. Stay standing. Here are the verses I'm going to read in verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You may be seated. Now, maybe uh, because I read the, the whole text that that portion I just read was taken from, maybe you already have an idea that the verses 26 through 29 are not so doom and gloomy, okay? Because at first glance, if I just read, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet one more time, right? He's going to shake the earth, remove the things that can be shaken, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain, you start to think maybe this is talking about the end of the world again. Maybe this is talking about the last judgment. But it's not. That would be incorrect. Here again, in Hebrews 12, like last time, We have a letter written to Hebrew Christians who are being tugged back and forth between the church of Jesus Christ and their previous upbringing under the scribes and Pharisees and temple worship and the sacrifices of the priests and so on. And if you recall, Hebrews... It is rich with language that describes this transition between the older covenant to its perfection in the new covenant. You've got to understand that when you're looking at the text. The apostle warns, therefore, the Hebrew Christian who's kind of not sure, who's doubting, Do not refuse the Lord who is speaking to you. He tells them if they they do not make themselves part of the kingdom of God's Son, but instead remain committed to the other, 
then they will be lost. There is no coming back from that. They are choosing to ignore God's prescription. He says there is a great shaking that is taking place. I say taking place in the present tense of when Hebrews was written. In the experience of the first, that first shaking that he discusses in the first paragraph here, was that God made the whole earth quake. He came near and he established something new and binding at Mount Sinai. And the earth quaked. It shook. When he spoke to them and gave the Ten Commands and the Mosaic Covenant, which indeed is the word of God, that these Hebrews that are torn seem to be leaning to, I can't just leave that stuff, can I? But when he gave, when God gave at Sinai the Mosaic Covenant, things shook. It was scary. And that's what's being discussed in that first paragraph. When Moses is afraid, there's a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken. But then in the second paragraph, the, the prophet Haggai is quoted. If you see the quotation marks there, the prophet Haggai. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What is Haggai talking about? Haggai came just about 500 years before Jesus. Haggai said the shaking up of things by God was going to happen again soon. That quaking would shake earth, but also heaven. So the writer of Hebrews is taking that first scenario at Mount Sinai, and he's coming along and taking Haggai, and Haggai saying, soon God's going to shake the earth again, but also heaven. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's what we're experiencing now and have already begun to experience. God indeed has spoken, and the earth shakes, and in this case, heaven is also shaking. In the Hebrew, this person debating, he or she must be part of Messiah's new kingdom in order to remain in order to survive the shaking. For the new kingdom cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. It is God's word for all mankind. Heaven and earth will be held accountable to it. And the old temple, which still stood, 
and its sacrifices would no longer be relevant. But then he asks, how much more should we obey if the one who spoke from the mountain now speaks from heaven? That's what he's, he's offering to the Hebrew Christian, or the one in doubt. How much more should we obey if the one who spoke from the mountain now speaks from heaven? If his word was capable of shaking the earth then, but now what he has said, it changes heaven too. We need to listen to that voice. In Haggai chapter 2, the prophet brings God's message. And it's actually a glorious message if you, if you want to look at it. It's not a message of dread. It's a message of promise. The message came at a time when the Jews had been sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple again. They were sent back by the Persians. But they hadn't quite gotten around to it. They built the walls. They built their own paneled houses. They were living in their paneled houses with a little bit of fear about continuing on with the work on the temple because they were afraid they'd be attacked by the surrounding peoples. And God's message through Haggai was, build my house. What are you waiting for? From the foundation up, stone upon stone, you are neglecting your work. And then in verses 6 through 9, Haggai continues speaking God's word, and he says this, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So Haggai's instruction to build that second temple during the days of the reign of Darius was accompanied by this promise. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And this shaking, according to the writer of Hebrews, is happening, was happening in their time. It is happening. The time has come. The time of God's covenantal upheaval, his covenantal transition. You see, Haggai, he was prophesying of the times of Messiah. Earth and heaven were being shaken by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It happened. Things were not fully established However, the ascension 
With the ascension, the Son of Man had already come in the clouds to the Ancient of Days. His heavenly Father. All authority had been given to him. That had happened. And soon, in this transitional period, soon the temple would be destroyed. It will no longer stand. Not one stone will be left upon another, just as Jesus announced. And that would be a sign to them that, they, that he had come in the clouds. Those who pierced him will recognize it, and they will be destroyed by the Romans. And then Jerusalem of Israel will, will lose its significance as a geogra- geographical destiny for worship. Why? Because the Jerusalem from above will have succeeded it. And Jesus forecast, his forecast to the Samaritan woman would be final. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the, the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what the church has been doing ever since it was born. What will be left as he's writing this letter, what will remain after the shaking of heaven and earth, this is what you got to understand. What will be left? Jesus Christ and his church remains and the kingdom over which he wishes to rule, it remains. The temple's gone. Those things are gone. The world will also remain with nations that need to be converted and taught the gospel and all the things that Jesus had commanded. In fact, it is those nations that Haggai said would bring the treasures into the more glorious house of God. And also the rest of creation, animal, vegetable, mineral, will remain groaning, still hoping to be released from every smidgen of frustration that it had been subjected to, its discontent that it had been subjected to by the fall of humanity. They wait for the sons of God to be revealed. This all remains, but not the temple. It was not left standing. The Mosaic Older Covenant had served its purpose. Yes, the church remains. Also, the good work that Christ did and intends to accomplish through, throughout the earth, it remains. It's unshakable. His unshakable kingdom is what we get to participate in. It will engulf our life's work. We get to do things that will always remain if we're careful about it. 
They count. Everything can matter. Our daily tasks, our children and homes and cars and all material things, if they serve Jesus Christ's purpose for good, they carry some kind of lasting effect. This is what we need to hear. For too long, the modern church has not emphasized this. Rather, many in the church have taught their children that everything they build and work toward, even with earnest desire to please the Lord, everything they build and work for, it still leads to the land of Mordor and the fires of Mount Doom because the Lord, the dark Lord, Sauron, has too much power. Balderdash. That's not what the Bible says of the future. And I'm thankful. I haven't spent too much of my Christian life thinking those thoughts. I'm thankful. I'm glad I did not plant a defeated Christianity in the minds of my children. How do you live a truly productive life with a sure dead end down the road. Or you just toughen it up. You just take your medicine. No. It's bad medicine. One of my favorite songs uh, starts and ends with a heartbeat. Anybody know what that one would be? Starts and ends with a heartbeat. It was performed by a band called Creed. Creed. The song is called With Arms Wide Open. Wonderful song. The lead singer, Scott Stapp, he wrote the song. And he, was, he wrote it because he was going to have his first child. And he determined, as he was thinking about all the responsibilities of a, of a father with this child, he, he determined he, he was going to raise his child looking at the world differently than he was taught to look at it. Stapp was was from a very strict and very devout Christian household, we're told. And he didn't want his son to grow up questioning himself and in his faith, like he himself had. And I cannot tell you the things he wanted to change and do differently, but I can tell you the song became an anthem for many people, many people, many youth. It became a sort of anthem for me, at least in regard to how the church has been looking at the world and our role in it, because that's that's been for the birds. Let me read just a little of the song, and I think you'll see what I'm getting at. And remember, this is how he wants to approach training up his child. He says, with arms wide open, under the sunlight. Welcome to this place. I'll show you everything with arms wide open. Now everything has changed. I'll show you love. I'll show you everything. If I had just one wish, he says, only one demand, I hope he's not like me. I hope he understands that he can take this life and hold it by the hand 
and he can greet the world with arms wide open. It was, it's a great song. Um, and like I say, I'm not sure what he is all rejecting. He still talks about praying in the song. Certainly there's some things we don't open our arms to and embrace in this world. That's part of our Christian duty. It's part of making the world better not to embrace sin. Church growth polls decry the absence of the younger generation. Where'd they go? Why don't our children take church seriously like we did? Have they left the faith? I don't know. I think they still consider themselves a Christian, but they don't go to church. I think the answer lies in the fact that false teaching has taken from them all hope for the future. And so work and children and homes and being a terrific grocery store owner or lab assistant or teacher or artist or salesman or gardener, these things don't last. So they've been told they don't last. They don't matter in the end. It has been suggested to them. Doom and gloom ahead. Reduce the importance of their life and their work and their households. To them, Christianity is, is hardly relative to what they must do for 40 plus hours a week. So why bother with Sundays? But not, none of what they were told in this regard was true. And if you told them that, you were wrong. But you can tell them now. By the new covenant, Jesus offers to all a wonderfully meaningful life. We get to take dominion again. The right way, I mean. We get to take dominion again the right way. And he keeps, he keeps our work intact. We represent Jesus and the kingdom, what? Which remains after the shaking occurred in the past, in that transitional period. Listen, when God shook the heavens and the earth, the church came down as the bride for her groom. The things important to the Son of God always continue on. And she has continued on for 2,000 plus years now. I tell you, you want to be part of the church. You want to invest in his kingdom. You need to work for his things. Your things must be his. That's how they survive. If your things are not his, they need to be tossed aside by the Lord. Lord. 
On the contrary, if the lesson is that the future is hopeless until he returns, right? If it is hopeless until he returns, then why would you spend extra time studying the intricacies of chemistry? Or try to incorporate improved video camera features for a customer's benefit. Or practice chiseling and talking, caulking techniques. Or explore the latest theories of education. Or how to care for ailing chickens. Why would you bother if these things all disappear from history? Someone might say, well... Uh, it puts food on my table. Got to eat until the Lord comes again. Pfft. You're kidding me, right? Or maybe they believe the things of this world are only meant to teach me lessons for my soul. God is concerned for my character. That is what the kingdom of heaven is about. People's insides. Apparently drawing the conclusion that God doesn't care that you finally discovered the cure for cancer, but only that his spirit's fruit of patience was produced in you along the way. Hogwash. Jesus rules now. We have the privilege of bringing his peace treaty to peace treaty to all people as we live and take dominion among them. We should want them to join us, build Christendom. Christendom. We should want them to put away their hostility to God and accept his terms of peace. That is the gospel mandate. And the gospel mandate was not given to replace the dominion mandate. Kingdom includes the earth. We are supposed to marry and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over the things of earth for its good, for its improvement. The gospel mandate actually gives mankind the ability to perform the dominion mandate properly. And we live among men and have for centuries who are trying to take dominion improperly in many cases. I am grateful to God for teachers in my life, mostly authors, but teachers in my life who work to show the falsity of the doom and gloom future. They carefully and through verse by verse exegesis forced me to see things in proper scriptural context. That's key. They showed me how to respect the time markers and the audience of each passage and the metaphorical use of language at times and the development of messianic doctrine throughout the law and the prophets. And so now I can counsel, like, say, uh, a young couple about to be married. 
and say there's meaning in your work. There's meaning in it. And, and they can change the world for good. They should build up a household into which, into which many children can find security and hope. That living according to Jesus' commands may require them to live counterculture for a time, but that their lives will be used by him to increase his kingdom. Their lives will matter, and their every breath can remain unshaken. The younger generation will surely be lost if they are taught their livelihoods really don't matter in the end. They will not come to church. You have much to offer them. If they are reassured it's all going to be taken over by the godless and then destroyed by God, that would be like your boss telling you to write your ideas for the ways a company might improve. Oh, okay. How might our company improve? And so you work for two weeks. You put in both weekends to really give, give him something of value. Then you print it out and you bind it in a nice presentation folder. And you're eager. You go in eager on Monday morning to present it to him. Only to have your boss take it, drop it into the wastebasket. No worries, Johnson. I'm going to go with something I figured out. Thanks anyhow. I appreciate your work. This is the message that has been taught to young Christians. You cannot successfully change the world, but only possibly save some souls, maybe. This has fostered that this has fostered that previous church history mistake that the only worthy callings are now ministry callings. In other words, the important occupations are that of pastor and missionary. You've likely seen how proud some parents are of sons in the ministry. I hope they're as proud as their son who became a plumber. What about the rest of us? who aren't a pastor or a missionary. What's our purpose? Do we just work to support them? That's crazy. Don't you see how crazy some of that sounds when you think about how great our God is and how purposeful he is? That's a message that de-emphasizes what Martin Luther fought to teach. That wonderful doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, the priesthood of all believers, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker are just as vital for Christ's church and kingdom as the so-called pastor or missionary. We gain ground, friends, when we believe that the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker all act as missionaries. That's what we have to do. We all are priests to our God. The Reformation 
of old, the Reformation of old liberated the church from the clergy-layman distinction. Each was responsible to honor God in his own calling. We've gone backwards. Indeed, because churches teach its members to expect only a pessimistic future, we have seen abysmal effort, abysmal effort by Christians to change the world. Congregants are disincentivized and disheartened when they conclude that their work in the culture cannot have a long-term purpose. What do we end up doing? What do we end up doing? We, we work and create and produce culture for the short term. Just as long as I live, unless I get raptured, that's the mentality. We make things for transitory use. We don't think it will remain. The result is a cheapened plastic and cardboard society where landfills are the destination after little use. This is far, this is far even from the medieval church. The motivation that, that worked inside of them to, 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 to take a whole century to build a cathedral to worship in. But who were they worshiping in their minds? An eternal God. An everlasting king. What does Christ want? A fast food drive through approach for his world? Or a seven course meal approach? We need to return to a reformed era, a Puritan era, from which a Protestant work ethic grew where men and women knew that planting and fixing and washing and sowing and feeding and resting and teaching and inventing and building were all to be pursued in submission to him. He was their king, and they determined to fulfill their callings, and they knew it mattered. How else would a homemaker find purpose in washing the same clothes week after week? and dusting the furniture. Eeks. How else would a doctor find satisfaction in tending to the terminally ill? How would a scientist not be discouraged after a thousand failed experiments? You must believe your work for Jesus remains. It makes a difference, even if there's no obvious recognition in the moment. Some people's work becomes profound after they die. Posthumously, posthumously, posthumously. Sorry. That Protestant work ethic in the hearts of people led to the founding It really did of academic institutions, hospitals, businesses, and governing bodies. Knowing that the Son of God is ruling motivates people to plan and save and invest. Knowing that the Son of God is ruling 
By that we avoid what? We avoid careless living. Too much game playing. That's careless living. Some game playing is good. We avoid careless living and indebtedness, knowing that those types of things hurt the long term. God is not a quick sale type of salesman. He's the kind that believes in lifelong consultation. And this veneer Christianity I'm describing, it stems from the dead-end eschatology, one without hope. As a result, we have a hard time making long commitments. We are not likely to be lifers at anything, including marriage. It's more likely that a church has a three-year pastor than someone who just stays. And where do they get the idea of three-year terms for office bearers? Cornelis van der Waal, I told you about him last week, he wrote that this thinking, the thinking spread that every tribe and every jungle must have heard the gospel before Christ can return. Okay, this is part of the end time doom and gloomer ideas. This is a false understanding of the Olivet Discourse. Okay, that everyone must hear and the last person hears out in that jungle somewhere when the last one hears then Jesus has to come back, right? Or that's when he comes back. But it's already happened. At least what the Lord was talking about, that gospel has gone out through all the earth, just as he said. Before the destruction of the temple even occurred, that happened. Let me just read a couple of quick verses to help you. Colossians 1, 5, and 6 says, of this you have heard before in the, world, in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Colossians 1.23, the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, already happened. 2 Timothy 4.17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. That's the kind of language that was being referred to. Jesus said the gospel will be proclaimed through all the world and then the end will come, the destruction of the temple. Then they will see the sign of the Son of Man that he'd come in the clouds. Let me finish with Vanderwall, okay? And, I, and I, I wanted to take the time on that just because there's all these little verses that are used out of context and they still got to rattle around in our heads until we get them straightened away. Vanderwall says, therefore, and this is, the, this is the thing I wanted to get a point across. Therefore, the cry goes out to evangelize the world in this generation. He wrote this in the 70s. So that through mission work, we can hasten the return of Christ. In the 19th century, the China Inland Mission, which wished to bring the gospel through traveling evangelists. Mission posts were not established as people felt that witness, witnesses were sufficient. 
In other words, they didn't set up camp to really teach and disciple. They just shared the gospel and moved on. If there were 200, this was the reasoning, if there were 250 million people in China, wrote Hudson Taylor, then there must be 50 million families. With 1,000 evangelists and canvassers, 50,000 families could be reached per day. This would mean that in less than three years, everyone in China would have heard the gospel. Vanderwall adds this corrective. In mission work, it's not enough to give a hasty witness. We have to teach the observance of all that Christ commanded the apostles. Life must, life must be Christianized in all areas. Last page. To present a gospel that saves people and does not expect them to change their work, their civilian affairs, their family education, their pursuit of higher art, etc., is to present a mission a misshaped and anemic gospel. It is inadequate. All the world belongs to Christ and therefore is a responsibility of each believer as a vassal of the king. This is what our young need now. A church that understands that Jesus Christ owns and rules and is making all things new. Yes, He is extending his kingdom with or without the full intention and cooperation of his people. What we must fight against, though, is a message of defeat. For it does not inspire and blow wind into anyone's sails. A message of defeat has left an older generation without their young in worship. You may have found memories of the past days of young people's society, Christmas nativity plays, special cadet Sundays, etc. You may be fond of all that, but if your children have moved on looking for hope in the future and meaning in their work, then you may have let them down by a dark view of the end times. The church cannot put itself on the periphery God has made us to inform and instruct people in the earth, in work, in science, in government, in journalism, in education, you name it. Yet somehow, and we know how, she has accepted a lesser role. A lesser role. There are good Christians who believe in what I've called the defeatist eschatology. They still believe it, but they're good Christians. They participate in the world. They try to affect change. Yet, all the while, they're looking over to the sideline for coach, wondering, have we lost yet? Unfortunately, too many sit on the sidelines altogether watching the secular society show them how the game of life is played. And then they return to church on Sundays as if it were simply a club for nice people who love Jesus. Occasionally, this periphery church 
will reach out to those in the common culture and try to be nice to them as if representing, though, a community club like Kiwanis or the VFW or the Moose Lodge. So the church's inroad to society isn't even through its people affecting changes, leading, teaching. Instead, we offer things like chili suppers and car washes and spring cleanups of yards or helping a desperate person out financially. All things you can do. But it's a far cry from the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would attend to this, to attend to us as your people, that you'd straighten our thinking in, in all things. And that we would teach the nations all that you commanded. Amen.